This is Genesis 2. And uh, you've got a lot of scripture references on page three in your bulletin. And that's for a good reason. Like, you're going to want to refer back to some of where we've been in Genesis 1. But actually, we're going to jump in today with Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I think it's up there, Brian. And then from there, we're going to go to Isaiah 66, which is on the next page, page 4. So, hear these words from the book that we love. This is Genesis 2, verse 1 and following. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And then Isaiah 66 Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Well, if, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been in the book of Genesis. And when we got started, Stephen Wood used uh, a couple images from the Toy Story series the, of movies that have been around for going on 30 years, which is crazy. It makes me feel really old. But there's a lot of stuff in the Toy Story movies that are pictures of finding out what the world around you is all about and who you are and who you belong to, and what you're for. So I've been rewatching them. It was right of Stephen to point that out. And this week I watched Toy Story 4 with my kids, which is the best one, I think. And there's a character in the movie that is literally trash, if you've seen Toy Story 4. It's, uh, there's this preschooler who, at her preschool, it's time to make crafts. And she makes her way over to this pile of discarded craft trash and she picks up a spork and like puts like little twine around it and googly eyes and like takes gum and makes feet with like a popsicle stick and calls it Forky. I mean that's a spork, she calls it Forky. And uh, the running thing throughout the movie is Forky, you know, comes alive obviously, it's a Toy Story, and um, is figuring out like am I trash? Like he, he's always trying to make his way back to trash, because trash is where he comes from. And uh, uh, he says things like, you know, I just figure, you know, maybe use me for some soup or for some salad, maybe chili. And then I get thrown in the trash. That's what I'm for. So he keeps trying to dive into trash cans. And like when they're on the road, he like jumps out the window and says, like, freedom. And, and you know, and actually, total side note, one of the really cool things about this image is the voice is Tony Hale. Uh, the actor Tony Hale, who is Buster from um, uh, uh, Arrested Development, who you might know um, from just interviews with like Terry Gross, is a very passionate Christian, and a lot of people in our congregation knew him from um, his days at Redeemer Manhattan in New York City, which you know, we have a close relationship with that church. Um, but the whole movie is him finding out, I am made of trash, and yet 
the, the, the scope of the movie is him finding out that there is no thing on the face of the earth that this preschooler likes better than Forky. And so there's some ways that this preaches and some that it doesn't, because you're not trash. And yet, we act like it, and we certainly act like other people are. And we've been in this critical place at the end of Genesis 1 and beginning of Genesis 2, where we find out, actually, that all of the cosmos, if you can dare to believe this, according to scripture, has human beings as its crown. Like even the language earlier, like on day four of creation in Genesis 1, even the spheres, the, uh, the, the luminaries in the sky are for seasons and festivals and events. They're frank, like, it's like they're all turned towards and exist in reference to human beings. And we talked about human beings being made in the image of God and what that means last week. It means at least that they are the crown of creation. They are beautiful. We are beloved and all of that. But actually, we get more today. And it's actually the main thing that we find out about what it means to be made in the image of God. That phrase is used in chapter 1, but we find out the fullness of what exactly that means at the beginning of chapter 2. But let me just stop for a second and, and just tell you about how much is at stake here. Because I think there's a lot. There's not a little at stake when we think about what it means to be a human being, whatever your walk of life, whatever your experience, frankly, whatever your faith Whatever your race, whatever your class, whatever your neighborhood, whatever your nation, whenever you exist in history. The U.S. Declaration of Independence, most of you know, Thomas Jefferson wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and so on and so on. About 175 years later, the U.N. Declaration of human rights. And both of these are like Article One of these monumental documents, the UN Declaration of Human Rights. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And the language, it seems like careful to not include reference to the Christian faith exactly. Yes, Jefferson references a creator several times. But think about this. Is it really self-evident that everyone in the world is equal? Like, how would you even find that out? Like, do you look at every single person in the world and conclude this through a conversation with them? Or like, how in the world would you actually empirically verify that every single human being who has ever lived is the image of God and the crown of creation? You can't. It's not like, you can't use evidence to get there. It's a statement of faith, and we hold these things to be true. Why? Because of the world revolution of Christianity. Because of these documents, and what they meant to our Savior, and what they've meant to our people ever since. That's what's at stake in this image of God conversation. So, image of God. It means we're of the highest value in creation. It means that we are beloved of God. But actually, none of that answers yet what exactly we are for. Yes, we are simply 
for being loved by God and loving him back and loving our neighbor as an expression of that love for God. Yes, that's what we're for. But there's actually, did you know, stuff that Genesis 1 and 2 insists that we're for in terms of our day-to-day life and what we should be doing. Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, tells us what we are for, but it does it by way of telling us where we are. So those are the two points that I'm going to give you this morning. Briefly, first, where we are, and secondly, what we are for. First, where we are. Now, there are, there are multiple ways, of course, to answer this question, where we are. First, you could say accurately that we are on the third planet from the star Sol in our solar system, which is part of the Milky Way galaxy, which is part of like this supercluster of something like 100,000 galaxies out of the billions of galaxies in the known universe. And that, of course, would be completely true. That's where we are. Genesis 2 tells you where you are also. You are in a temple. Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, is, what, is where you find out all the, way, all the things we've looked at so far in Genesis 1. You find out at the beginning of Genesis 2 that you are essentially, mainly, in a temple How do we know this? Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, let me read them again. Thus the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, a few things. One, and we're going to reference this back as we continue in Genesis, day seven is the only day that doesn't end. Every day so far, evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, on through the sixth. If you've been here, you've seen this. Just read Genesis one. Day seven, it never says that. What's the implication? Something is being communicated that whatever's happening on day seven, never ends. It continues in perpetuity forever and onward. That's the first thing. Secondly, all this language about God resting. In the ancient world, the reason why temples were built was for divine rest. The ancients knew this better than than we do. I'm going to quote here uh, about a paragraph from a very helpful book for me called, called The Ancient World or The Lost World of Genesis 1 by John Walton. This is what he writes. He says, what does divine rest entail? What does it mean when we read, and God rested? Most of us think of rest as disengagement from the cares, worries, and tasks of life. I'm not going to do anything today. I'm going to rest. But... In the ancient world, rest is what results when stability has been achieved, when things have settled down. In other words, after creation, God takes up his rest and he begins to rule from his residence. Think of the American White House. It's the hub of authority 
and control. And that is the picture that we have here. One picture of this is that Isaiah passage that we read. It's there at the top of page four in your bulletin. Isaiah 66, verses one and two. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. It's where I sit. The earth is my footstool. What's the house you're going to build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Everything is. Creation is God's house. And the interesting thing is, whenever Israel set about actually building God a house, like the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of Solomon, this was really explicit. There, were, there was all this imagery that alluded to the fact that this temple or tabernacle is kind of like a small working model of the whole universe. For example, and just to show you, this is not a modern idea. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote this at the beginning of the second century, though he lived in part uh, during the time of the apostles in the first century, Josephus says of the tabernacle, every one of the objects in the tabernacle was intended to represent the universe. For example, there's this basin in the courtyard, just filled with water, and it's supposed to symbolize, well, in addition to being a cleansing agent, the, the watery chaos of, like, outside the known universe. But then you get, you get a little further in, and you start to see images of light, like, let there be light, lampposts, right? You start to see images, especially in the temple, of vegetation. This is day three stuff, right, if you were here a few weeks ago. The dry land being cleared away to bring forth greenery, and you keep going. What do you come against next? A veil, a veil that separates like the space of everyone from God's space. Where did we read about something like a veil in Genesis 1? Remember that firmament? It's like a veil between the earth and the heavens, and it keeps going and going and going, and I can give you more resources than this. The point is, Genesis 1 and 2 is telling you you are in a temple all the time. This is God's house. And in God's house, get this, everything is sacred. Here's why this matters. Let me give you one big reason why this matters. You and I are the most valuable things in God's creation but nothing in God's creation is ours. You see that? That could not be more important. You and I and every other human being on the face of this planet, we are the crown of God's creation. We could not be more valuable. And yet, there's not one thing in the world that at the end of the day is really ours. It's all his. What does that mean? That means everything that we do in this life Every bit of dust that we step on, every meal we make, every creature that we encounter is his. And it will be returned to him. He must really think highly of us. But he also never wants us to forget, folks, you are stewarding what has always been and what always will be 
mine. I mean, let's just take, let's just take five seconds of silence. Just where does your mind go when you think of that truth? I feel like I, I preach a lot of sermons. I've also listened enough to know that that five seconds might have preached better than anything else I'm going to say by the Holy Spirit. There's something there that you're stewarding, and you've been careless. It's okay. He loves you. He forgives you. But don't lose the gravity of that. That responsibility, that burden is still with us. I'm just going to give you one. I'm just going to give you mine, the one that's on me today. And I just wouldn't know how to go through Genesis 1 and 2 without speaking to it. And that's just simply creation care. Creation care. Now, this is an issue like from everything from climate science to policy to just functionally, functionally thinking through how we live in this life to the very real anxiety that a lot of us live with on a day-to-day basis of what is happening to the world around us. And another thing that I don't have to tell you about is how split we are as a society about what to do with all those ideas and observations. And all that, you better believe, goes right through the church as well. What do we do with these observations of what we see and hear and notice and also what we're being told by climate scientists and nations are convening, it seems like, all the time to discuss? Let me tell you one thing that came to me this week through conversation with Larry Walker. Think about people in your life who are on either side of this. It was a really formative conversation with Larry. Larry said, John, you know what? A lot of my family are fishermen, fisher people. Fishermen, fisherwomen, and uh, their kids fish. And uh, we're not far from a neighborhood called Fish Town. And uh, a lot of my family would say, all that climate science is junk. Whatever you think about that. What they would agree on with anyone is, isn't it tragic that we can't eat the fish out of the river? Can you see how we may not be all that far apart? Like, like people who love the world and, 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 and use it for recreation and for worship and for work and living. It's not working the way it's supposed to, and it's tragic. We've done a bad job. I mean, how far apart are we on this, really, or how far apart do we have to be? We are not treating this place like it's hallowed ground. We're just not. We are uncareful. We do not treat this world like it's a gift. And one of our main jobs is to lovingly care for it and get this, offer it back. It is a temple, folks. You don't treat it like, I don't know. I don't know how you treat your basement. I hope you don't treat it like my basement. It's a temple. Only then, actually, folks, do you find out what you're for. If you can see everything around you as God's own house, then you really start to understand what it means to be the image of God, and that's the second point. Genesis 1, again, calls us images. Then when you find out that in Genesis 2 that we're in a temple, think about this. In the ancient world, the last thing you would do when you built a temple is you would put 
an image in it. You would put an idol in it. And what do you do with an idol or an image? Well, no one thought that was actually the god. It's not like they said that piece of wood is our god. No. An idol was you get access to the god through it. Somehow the image or the idol is intended to establish the god's renown in the world. And God says yes to some of that and no way to some of that. He says, I'm going to put my images in my temple for sure. I'm going to fill the earth with them. But they're not going to be wood and they're not going to be bronze. They're going to be living, breathing, servant kings and queens who serve me in my temple in living, loving communion with me. That's what it means to be image of God. Not just that you're beautiful. Not just that you are the most valuable along with your brothers and sisters and the multitudes around the world and across time. Not just your value and your belovedness of God, but you are for making God known in the world. You're a worshiper and a servant in his temple. You are here to love God back who first loved you and love your neighbor as yourself. And in this way, reverently serve him in his cosmic house. If you took another five seconds, I won't give give it to you now. You could think of a lot of different answers that the world around us has given, is giving, and is about to give a lot of the meaning that the world around us is about to give and is giving now to human beings. What is the meaning of a human being? Ask different people and you will get different answers. Not so long ago, most nations of the world acted like your average human being was a cog in a machine or a servant to work the ground mainly or only. It wasn't that long ago pre-enlightenment. Some of us think today, some of the people who we are called to love, that we are basically meat suits carrying around consciousness. And one of the best things that we could do is hasten the day when we can just upload our consciousness. I'm not making this up. It's coming. Upload our consciousness to free ourselves from these mortal bodies. Now, whatever else a human being is, we're going to see this more in Genesis 2, it is dust and the breath of God. Material and immaterial joined as priests of all the earth. Or are we simply meaningless creatures waiting to be defined? I would suggest to you that this is the lie that comes in Genesis 3 in the garden that we are for self-definition. The lie that we are given the freedom to reject or deny God. And if you've tried it, you know that this is actually not freedom. It's a trap. It's slavery. What does Jesus say in John 8, which is the reason why we named our church the name we gave it? If the Son sets you free, then you are free Indeed, the name Liberty, we didn't just give it an I to like misspell it on purpose like the Beatles. 
liberty is the plural Latin word for freed people, the freed slaves of the Roman Empire. Set free people. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. What do we need to be set free from? Turning away from our creator from the beginning and every day since enslaves whatever else it does. And whatever else we see happening at the cross, the Son of God giving his life for sinful humanity, yes, it is forgiveness. Yes, it's a covering of the guilt that we've incurred that he puts on himself and he covers us by his grace and mercy and gives us his righteousness while taking away our unrighteousness. You know what else it is? It is a setting free from the power of slavery to sin. And when Michelangelo was asked how he made his famous sculpture, David, he said, I just carved until I set him free. Just picture this, like this piece of material, and he's just chipping away and refining. It's like he knew the image. The image was there in his mind the whole time, but the work was just clearing away, clearing away, clearing away, until in all of its glory, David, the statue, was just there. I love this as an image for our salvation for a lot of reasons. One is, sin essentially is not a thing. Sin can't exist unless it attaches itself to something else in God's good creation. So part of our working out of our salvation, that's called our sanctification in the New Testament, is like this getting away of the, getting the impurities off of us. Like God is chipping, chipping, chipping away and say, okay, there's, that doesn't belong there, that doesn't belong there, where is my beautiful beloved image? I'm not letting it go, but I am going to refine the image until its full glory is restored. Jesus knows what the image is because we're modeled after him. I'm going to end on this point. This is, this is a little theologically heady stuff, but it's really, really important. The Apostle Paul says, and this is in your bulletin on page four, but I didn't read it in, in, in Colossians 1, and also in, uh, in Romans 5, verses 13 and 14. He refers to Jesus a bunch as the image of God. Jesus alone is the image of God. We are in Jesus' image we are made after his image, but it's Jesus who is the image. And Paul uses a lot the language of type. It's a really important language in the Bible. You think about, about a typewriter, like the, the key that like pounds a piece of paper with ink, like that key, think of that as like the prototype or the archetype. And anything, any mark made on the paper is like a type, it's like a piece of type. You don't understand a human being unless you understand Jesus. Jesus knows how to set people free. Jesus knows what you're made for. And if you wonder, in terms of brass tacks, in terms of coming and going, in terms of eating, living, working, sleeping, fellowshipping, look at the life of Jesus Christ. Yes, you've wandered. Yes, you've marred the image within you by sin. He's forgiven that at his cross, and you better believe your journey on this life, through this life, is him slowly but surely, steadily working in you to bring that glory fully back. And folks, I want you to expect it. 
I want you to, I want you to long for the day when you're not just no longer struggling with sin, when you're not just no longer suffering, but for the day when glory starts shining forth from you and other people like never before. And if you hang out in the church long enough, you see more and more of the mess and how the image in us isn't what it was supposed to be because of sin. But I promise you, and I've seen it this year maybe like never before, you will see glory shining through. You will see people confessing their sin. You will see people laying hold of the means of grace. You will see people forgive in otherworldly ways that reflect the true image of God that is Jesus Christ. It's all a temple, folks. You are the image in the temple, and so am I. Um, One of my favorite songs is called um, Helplessness Blues by a band called Fleet Foxes. Um, I don't know if you know them, but it's a beautiful song. It goes like this. Um, I grew up believing I was somehow unique, just like a snowflake, unique among snowflakes, distinct in each way you can see. But now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. And I don't know, I don't know, I don't know just what that will be. I'll get back to you someday soon, you will see. And I love that song because it's like, I want to believe I'm special. I want to believe I'm valuable. I want to believe just like a snow, snowflake, I'm unique. And somebody created me with divine intent and it matters and it goes all the way down. But I also want to believe, and I don't know if I can have them both, that I'm not just special for my own sake and going to make my own kingship of the cosmos, but I'm actually part of something intended to serve something or someone beyond me. And the gospel says, you got them both. You have to have them both. You are here serving someone beyond you as the most valuable thing within the cosmos. And if you don't think this is good news to people, you don't know anyone who's really at the end of the rope. And maybe you can't preach at home. But let's pray that our light shines in such a way that it guides people home as God brings this true reality of what all things are for through his church into a world that is desperately needy for it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.